Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. We either had to change our mission statement and say that we actually helped fund advocacy movements or that we came in in the aftermath of a mass atrocity. After the school was burned down, we gave funds to rebuild a school, which is incredibly worthy. Or we had to actually try and do what our mission statement said, which was to stop a mass atrocity. And that's what led to our intervention. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons for this week. Hi, I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. Gabe will be joining us shortly. What is our mission as Christians? Uh, some people like to point to the Great Commission found in the Gospel of Matthew. Others will add the passage from Micah 6 that says that God requires us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. But what would you do to fulfill that mission? Today, we're going to hear two talks of people who have taken very seriously the mission they feel God has called them to, so much so that they've gone to places and confronted some of the most difficult issues head-on in an effort to provide hope and restoration. You heard from Shannon Sedgwick Davis a few moments ago. She's with the Bridgeway Foundation, an organization whose goal is to end mass atrocities around the world. And we'll listen to her later in the show. But first, we want to go back a few years when ISIS was ravaging Iraq. The refugee crisis was intense, and Jamie Courtney and Noelle Yates were a couple of Americans who saw the need and felt God's call for them to do something about it and not from a distance. Here's a talk from a couple of years ago at a Q conference where they spoke with Gabe about their organization, the Preemptive Love Coalition, and serving those in need in Iraq. Let's listen in. You live in Iraq, you and your family have been there, you have children. I think part of the challenge that most of us have is this not feeling real enough. It feels like news headlines. We, we can't quite get our head around it. Will you just kind of tell us about why you live in the region, number one, which preceded any kind of refugee crisis we're talking about today, but then kind of bring us up to speed on what's been happening over this last decade in that region for you. Yeah, I mean, like many of you, 9-11 was a really catalytic event in my life. It was one of those forks in the road when the whole church really seemed to retreat into itself and became very fearful, fearful of Muslims, fearful of terrorism. It seemed like a very xenophobic decade that we've been through. I don't know if we've ever quite come out of that, that moment since 9-11 when our temple was destroyed. And we were part of a tradition and part of a community that dared to preach a slightly different message, preach to us that just like the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus was sending us out in the world, out in the world to die, out into the world to lay our lives down for others. And so we were compelled to go into the Middle East in a time of terrorism. We were compelled to move into Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war. And for many years, we've been now laboring in Iraq and laboring in neighboring countries like Iran and Libya, your favorite vacation spots. We were there before ISIS came on the scene. We were there working in really hard places that you've heard about, like Fallujah. And when ISIS kind of bubbled up from inside Iraq and started pouring over from Syria as well, 
we were already there. We already had a position in the country and already had been serving. And so we, we used that moment to, to really start reaching beyond the programs that we were already doing and to serve the people all around us. As, as three and a half million refugees were pouring into our cities and people who had been persecuted and displaced by ISIS, we took on a new chapter of what we were doing and began giving out food and shelter and all those kinds of things that needed to happen at that time. But really what we've learned over the last couple of months is that this train of just continuing to give aid to people on a hamster wheel is not going to really be enough. And so we've also added a whole other layer of what we're doing during these days, which is helping people get jobs and helping make sure that they can stand on their own two feet and have some form of economic development even in these hardest times. Well, and Jeremy Courtney leads an organization called Preemptive Love that was doing life-saving heart surgeries prior to now. You do that and about 10 other things because you're responding. Uh, Noelle Yates uh, leads an organization called World Help. Her father founded Vernon Brewer, uh, a wonderful organization that for years has been really working with the most vulnerable in so many contexts Mm -hmm. around the world. Uh, And you've been in the Middle East since 2004 doing work there. But tell us what's been unique about this particular refugee crisis in this moment. Yeah. Well, we have been there since 2004, and we've been uh, doing work like providing aid, planting churches. We uh, partnered with the largest evangelical church in Iraq. We were able to provide a million Bibles there in the region and even did things like sponsoring an Internet cafe across the street from Baghdad University. So we were already there on the ground and had a network really that somewhat prepared us for this crisis. But you're right, this crisis was so unique, and I I think if I had to narrow it down to just two things that make it so unique is one, it's just the pure evil of the crisis. We, we've all heard it, the beheadings, the cutting children in half, the raping and the selling of women, the targeting of Christians and ethnic minorities. I mean, it's evil in some ways like we have never seen before. And then the second thing I would say is really the sheer magnitude of the problem. I mean, you have the U.S. recently declaring this genocide. We've all heard that it's the worst refugee crisis since World War II. I think the most recent numbers is 4 million refugees and 11 million displaced persons. I mean, it's huge. And so uh, because it's so unique, this crisis required us to have a different strategy and a unique strategy. And so our strategy for this crisis is simple. It's rescue, restore, and rebuild. And we start with rescue because we start by saving their lives. And so we're sending container shipments of aid that is being delivered right to those camps, food, clothing, water, just basic living necessities. We have a mobile medical clinic that a church here in the States was able to fund that literally goes right to these refugee camps and provides health care that they don't have. And even if they had it, they couldn't afford. They set up in those camps for about two weeks and hundreds of people line up every day that they're there. They can see about 100 patients a day. They're completely outfitted with doctors and equipment to treat everything from the common cold to high-risk pregnancies. And so that's just the beginning of our strategy. And as Jeremy said, we certainly can't stop there. But we have to start there because we can't really invest in them in any other way if we don't save their lives first. Yeah, I know um, Sheikh Mohammed and Steve, we talked with them yesterday, but one of the things they had, they had said to us in sort of a private meeting was those who feed them are the ones that they'll listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, And if you don't start with the basics, like forget about everything else. Jeremy, your wife, Jessica, has just been doing some, some really creative work um, lately that's pretty exciting. And, and I think part of what most people, we don't get in the media headlines, or at least sometimes in the Christian 
conversations about this is, is people think it's the Christians are being persecuted. That's the only group that's really having an effect. But what you find is it's more Muslims than Christians who are dealing with what's happening. And that can sometimes be hard for Americans, for churches to figure out how do we support working alongside Muslims? We saw Stephen Sheikh talking about that. I know you know Sheikh Mohammed, but some of your work, you're, you're definitely, you have to work with those who don't agree with your theology necessarily, but do agree that we have to do something. Can you just talk about what Jessica's been doing and just how you kind of wrap your head around doing that? Yeah, so this, this whole notion that we follow a God who dared to love his enemies gave birth to an idea that we've come to call preemptive love, that, that we lean forward to love other people, to strike other people with love before they do anything to us. We don't jump forward to hit other people before they do anything to us. We love other people before they do anything to us. And so this has led us into some of the hardest places of Iraq, into these communities where people have been beheaded and massacred by ISIS. And we've worked with militia leaders and we've worked with grand ayatollahs and we've worked with Sunni clerics and we've worked across the board. And one of the things that has been born out of this situation is my wife's leadership on a project to help stand Iraqis and Syrians up on their own two feet so that they can make money for themselves. Uh, a regional product that's been in the region for decades and centuries before that is a handmade olive oil soap. And so she's seized upon this ancient practice and is teaching people who have been driven from their homes and are living in tents and are living in you know, squalor and abandoned buildings how to make this ancient product that the region loves, that the region needs and teaching them to do it, they formed these bonds. The women who have lost their husbands to ISIS, Syrians who have been driven out of their country because of Assad, and they have become this kind of sisterhood in the process. And so Jessica, my wife, has launched this international brand of soap, Sisterhood Soap. And uh, the launch of this soap was so overwhelmingly positive that we've blown through our inventory two or three times already. We've had to rent new space. We've had to hire new refugees. And uh, we're putting thousands of dollars in the pockets of these women it wasn't there last week because of this idea of awesome. being in this together, actually being yeah. brothers and being sisters. This is Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. And that was just a portion of Gabe's talk with Jeremy Courtney and Noel Yates of the Preemptive Love Coalition. The full talk, if you'd like to hear it, and many other thought-provoking talks for that matter, are available when you subscribe to the Q Media platform at qideas.org. The time is going quickly, and we want to give you another example of living deeply on mission where God calls you. Gabe joins us now with our second talk, and this features Shannon Sedgwick Davis. Gabe, tell us about her. She's somebody who has given her life to fighting back against injustice and she's had to do this from several different places. I mean, she once was at the International Justice Mission. She leads a foundation. But what you're going to hear in this story is how she decided, like, she didn't want to just sit behind a desk and try to fight injustice. She actually wanted to go to the front lines and get involved in probably one of the most talked about injustices over the last two decades, which is the child soldiering problem that has been happening in Africa, where Joseph Coney has been for years kidnapping children, putting them with guns in their hands on the front lines of war at the age of five and on for many, many years. And so much has been done to try to stop this. And yet it seemed he just continued to stay in power. And so in this story, you're going to hear about how a professional leader decides to go take it upon herself to start leading this effort. And so join as we just listen into this amazing story 
from Shannon Sedgwick Davis, author of To Stop a Warlord. This guy named Joseph Coney really has become one of the most infamous war criminals in the world. Abducting children, putting machine guns in their hands, asking them to go out and kill people their age, to kill their parents, brainwashing them, moving them to do the most violent and harsh and tragic things that no child should ever experience. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in this area of Africa due to this war that has constantly gone on. Well, Shannon Cedric Davis, who's been a part of Q, she spoke in 2009 in Austin prior to taking on this latest charge. But in her own right, has been a philanthropist, has led a foundation, has worked with IJM, has done a lot of things in her career, but there's a particular moment where a conviction and a calling just set in on her. And I want us to hear the story of of what happens when this all of a sudden comes upon you. She most recently, a few weeks ago, published a best-selling book called To Stop a Warlord that tells this story. And I wanted to invite her back. I wanted her to share with us her story since she was last with us of what God's done in her life and how he's used her to just be a part of an unfolding story in the middle of Africa. So join me in welcoming Shannon Sedgwick Davis. So Shannon, you had a lot going on, and then there was a moment where this tragedy that was taking place and unfolding and seemed to just never end in Africa was playing out. Why did you find yourself that, that you needed to get involved and take a more active approach than just donating money or getting somebody else to help? You decided to take an active role yourself. Yeah, it really traces back to our foundation. I was CEO of the Bridgeway Foundation. We have a money management and mutual funds company that gives 50% of its profits to stop mass atrocity and genocide in the world. And in 2008, the LRA committed a series of Christmas massacres. And we looked at the grants that we had been giving in and around this issue area and saw that mass atrocity and really had to sort of look at ourselves in the mirror And then in 2009, we had heard rumors that there would be a second Christmas massacre. Christmas 2009 came and went. We thought, no Christmas massacre. And I went up in March of 2010 to meet with a researcher that we had in the field. And she looked at me and she said, Shannon, actually, there was a Christmas massacre. And I've just found out about it. And I've just come back from collecting the evidence. It ultimately ran in the New York Times after that. But this idea that 321 people were killed again in another series of massacres and that the world didn't know about it until three months later was deeply convicting. And it just felt like that was it. We either had to change our mission statement and say that we actually helped fund advocacy movements or that we came in in the aftermath of a mass atrocity. After the school was burned down, we gave funds to rebuild a school, which is incredibly worthy. Or we had to actually try and do what our mission statement said, which was to stop a mass atrocity. And that's what led to our intervention. I know you wrote and have said before, I was tired of putting Band-Aids on bullet holes. How did that alter just your approach? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it it absolutely just felt like that's what we were doing. We were coming in the aftermath and and putting Band-Aids on bullet holes. And when you ask yourself, gosh, do we want to actually try to be a meaningful part of stopping a conflict? I think initially your first answer is, well, no, like that's a a private foundation doesn't belong doing that. Mm -hmm. 
But then when you actually start to spend time on the ground, and we did with our partners and do a lot of listening, you'll find that the local community has all the solutions. Mm -hmm. There's oftentimes just a few gaps. And uh, there was in this case, a couple of gaps that we looked to fill. One was an early warning network. So a lot of these communities that were losing um, hundreds of lives, uh, they didn't have cell phone towers. They didn't have radio towers. So sometimes a community would be attacked and then the LRA would move 20 kilometers and attack the next community. And so we were able to partner with a Catholic priest, Father Abbe Benoit, and help launch a radio network that now was available to actually give real-time information to villagers in terms of the LRA's movements. And then when you have that kind of information, you say, oh gosh, we know where they are and we know how they're operating. You have to ask, gosh, is there something we can do about actually apprehension or bringing this to a close? And that's when we decided to um, fund trainers to train a special forces group within the Ugandan military as they were already pursuing the LRA. And that yeah. really that really was the unconventional part, I think, of our participation. Yeah, and I know you were flying back and forth, you know, leaving your home and your kids in Texas and showing up in the jungles of Africa and trying to live kind of this double life. That was probably hard to explain to your friends. And sometimes I think these leaders, they're called into these places where it's hard to even at home to know how to talk to the people you go to church with or you're spending time with them, what God's called you to do and how you're doing it so strategically. Talk a little bit, though, about the people that you were training there and some of the unsung heroes. You mentioned a Catholic priest that was helping on some fronts. Are there some other people locally there that just to you just stood out? I know in your book you talked about several. Yes, yeah, so many of them. I mean, one of um, the most incredible partners we had along the way is a man named David Ochiti. And in our book, we chronicle his journey um, alongside the story. David was born the year the LRA started. And at age 16, uh, the LRA came into his village and kidnapped all of those that were in his village, uh, him and his brothers. And then they took him and put him to gunpoint and said, who do you love the most, your mother or your father? And David's response was, I can't answer that question. I, I love them both the same. And they forced him to answer who he loved the most. And he said his father and his father was killed there in front of him. That is the depravity of humanity that the LRA represents. Mm. And David was kidnapped, went into the LRA for six months, bravely tried to escape and was successful in escaping, escaped alongside another boy that was with him, and that boy was not successful in escaping. And David has now um, come out, and the first thing, instead of going into deep grief, as one might expect, David said, no, I'm going to do everything in my power to stop this and help bring the rest of my brothers and sisters home. And so David does this incredible work that we've been so fortunate to help support um, the LRA has broken into really small groups, and they're across a 90,000-square-kilometer radius. And so at any given time, you've got little groups of LRA individuals with additional kidnapped individuals, and they might be being led by someone who was kidnapped at the age of six mm -hmm. and is now 26 and is operating and leading this group. 
And so most of the time, it's someone who obviously never intended to join the LRA or be a part of the LRA. And we might identify that in a certain region where there's this dense, triple canopy, thick jungle, you know, that we think Sam Opio might be in that region. And so David will go back to the villages in Uganda and try to find Sam Opio's family, maybe a sister, maybe a mother, maybe an aunt, and record on his iPhone a message directly to them, Dwag Pacho. Come home, my son. I've never stopped waiting for you. That's mm. what one of the mothers has stated wow. on the messages, which is so powerful. And then we'll plug them into these speakers that we have on our helicopter and uh, hover over the region and, um, and just actually ask these individuals to come out. Mm. And the Ugandan military gave amnesty to anyone who wasn't a ICC and IT. And over that season, 730 walked out. Wow, that is incredible. Awesome. You, you've said in your book, you said, I've learned probably more from evil and suffering than anything else. What did that mean? Yeah, I did. I was so fortunate to grow up. I was a youth pastor's daughter growing up in Texas and uh, so incredibly fortunate to grow up in a safe and loving home. And, uh, and I just feel like I was surrounded oftentimes by the concept of good a lot more than evil. And then my work mm. led me to places of where deep evil was occurring. Uh, what we just talked about, David's story. David is just one of thousands and thousands. Um, and I really had to wrestle with that. I had to wrestle with, um, with the idea that our God is a good and loving God and that human beings are capable of that kind of evil. And uh, in essence, my faith, became much deeper because I wrestled with the entirety of it, Right, um, but different. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, joy. Joy was harder for me to come by than ever before. Mm. Uh, growing up, I think I had rosy-colored glasses and just seemed to be able to sense and feel joy much easier. And uh, after doing this work, I was, I was lucky to be a part of a group called The Elders, in yeah. which was founded by Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Tutu was the chairman of. And we were traveling in Darfur and Arch, as I call him, we were in a, a refugee camp and we were witnessing horrific things. And he was, um, he was standing there and I was watching him and we were so sad. Mm. I mean, it's just so, so horrific what we were witnessing. And he started to sing and he started to dance. Mm. And then the rest of the community started to sing and dance. Mm -hmm. And this white girl had to try to sing and dance. And uh, afterwards, when we were in our car on the way uh, back to where we had uh, set out from, I asked Arch, I said, Arch, you know, what was that about? Like, you started singing and dancing in the midst of these people and, and them telling us these horrific stories. And he said, Shannon, I was, I was crying inside. He said, but he said, joy has to be practiced. Mm. And joy is a discipline. Mm. And and thinking about joy that way and thinking about the promises, right. I think, in right. the scriptures yeah. about joy, yeah. I think he's absolutely right. Yeah. And so that's just another way I think that my, my faith has been transformed is yeah. in the practice of joy. Well, what a great way to encourage all of us about the practice of joy. Um, you know, happiness is more of an emotion, but that's joy right. is a deeper discipline to experience in the face of tragedy. And you've seen it up close and personal more than many people that I know. And so thank you for your faithfulness to just keep walking forward in it. 
to keep fighting. I know this is one of those stories and this is the hard part about the the world that we're in is is you feel like you get some wins and then you have some setbacks and you, you, you hope for one day it's all going to be solved, but you don't often see that in the immediate moment. It takes this long journey. And so thank you for being willing to tell your story to Stop a Warlord, incredible book of her travels there and this incredible work as you're continuing to do your incredible work. So let's thank Shannon Cedric Davis for being with us. If you want to hear more of Shannon's story, you can do that by getting her book to Stop a Warlord, My Story of Justice, Grace, and the Fight for Peace, wherever books are sold. And it's an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, we got to hear some of it. And I love just how she helped us remember joy and how joy is a discipline and how when we're faced with dark times, when we're faced with injustice, when we're faced with evil and the darkness in our world, that our response has to be one of hope and joy in the midst of those difficult circumstances. And Gabe, people don't have to go to remote areas to live on mission. The reality is the communities we live in have issues and needs that the church can and should address. And that's why we here at Q have been hosting events called Q Commons in cities around the U.S. for several years. The next ones are coming up, as a matter of fact, this Thursday, October 24th. And Gabe, in our remaining moments, tell us about Q Commons. People come together in their communities to talk about issues that matter, to consider how do we think well and advance good at the most local of levels. That can be in your family. That could be on your street, in your neighborhood. It can be with the team members that you work with. It can be with your entire church or small group. It can also be for your entire city. We'll have 75 locations gathering in cities, public settings, where not only do you hear Malcolm Gladwell, Francis Chan, and Rebecca Lyons deliver talks, broadcasts to all of us and all around the world, but you're also going to get to hear from local leaders, people who are trying to address problems and bring solutions to your community, just like Shannon did around the world. These are people in your own city doing the same thing, advocating for the rights and, and the justice for other people. So on that night, October 24th, look at qcommons.com and see if your city is hosting a large gathering in your city. If it is, please attend. Invite your friends out to attend. We all come together on that night. I get to host the evening, but we get to hear from so many different voices, and you get a chance to talk with one another, to hear how others in your city are thinking about these issues, but most importantly, to build friendship, to start to build relationships with other people who care about these same issues. In a world where we feel so connected, sometimes it's really hard to find the others who want to work together to solve problems in your community. And this night is a magnet for that conversation. So go to qcommas.com, learn more. If there's not one in your city, you can actually host it in your home. You can invite people over, have some apps, maybe have dinner, maybe order pizza, but come together and have a night you're going to dedicate to having an incredible conversation about how to advance good in our moment. This program is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.